Welcome to the first episode of Restless Discipline of Context, a podcast about Latin American history, the African diaspora, and the history of sexuality. Thank you for listening. This first episode will be chapter six of my 2013 book, Violent Delights, Violent Ends. This is a book about the city of Cartagena de Indias in the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Chapter 6 is entitled, Cartagena's Most Notorious Sorceress. To begin, as a historian pours through documents hundreds of years old, sometimes an almost invisible dust swirls above the surface of paper covered in hastily written notarial scrawls and whips itself into a tiny imaginary tornado and a fully embodied human takes shape. The written records that outline Paola de Aguiluz's life reveal her to be an astoundingly opportunistic, canny woman. Her decades of interactions with the Cartagena Holy Office of the Spanish Inquisition over the course of three separate trials for sorcery and witchcraft have intrigued historians for hundreds of years. Paola thoroughly exploited every available advantage, striving to survive and prosper against the odds of birth into slavery and the machinations of her lovers, friends, foes, adversaries, and highly suspicious Spanish inquisitors. In the 1620s and 1630s, her nemesis was Diego Lopez, a freedman labeled a mulatto and her competitor in the local healing trade marketplace. The documentary traces of Paola's life center on the bitter rivalry between these two healers, exposing the vibrancy and tensions of the Cartagena market for love potions, medical remedies, and even fatal poisons. Aggressive competitions for clients was common practice among colonial Latin American women, and Paola drew on her businesswoman's wit in the even more stressful setting of an Inquisition trial. While female sexuality often became political in a judicial setting, this perception is muted for free non-white women due to their greater need to focus on economic goals and basic day-to-day survival. In the early 17th century, the market for love magic revolved around social ties among white and black women and the occasional man. The exchange of knowledge of spells and healing flourished in the Circum-Caribbean among men, especially with ties to the church, and women of African, Iberian, and indigenous heritage. Inquisitors encouraged these possessors of special knowledge to self-confess their trespasses. After her second arrest by the Holy Office, Paula pointed her fingers at dozens of women and one man involved in sorcery and possibly orgiastic satanic gatherings. This chapter I'm reading draws on statements voiced by Paula's dissatisfied clients and rivals, including Diego Lopez, as well as Paula's ruthless efforts to defend herself. The focus here is Paola, her love life, her dramatic manipulations of the inquisitors, her clientele, and her bitter enemies and competitors in the healing trade. Despite her low status as a black freedwoman and a penitenciada, Paola won these battles, even overcoming Diego Lopez's inflammatory attempts to turn the inquisitors against her. What we know of Paola's biography shows how 17th century inquisitors increasingly linked women's illicit and disruptive sexual desires to an unchristian world of demons, despite the belief in using spells and potions to aid love affairs among all social classes. Love magic's popularity proves women attempted sexual agency against the momentous odds of the honor code, gender hierarchies, and a paternalistic society. 
Paolo was born in the 1590s, the daughter of Africans enslaved in Santo Domingo. She passed the most important years of her young adulthood in Cuba as the slave and lover of Joan de Egulus, an important administrator of Spanish copper mines. Joan de Egulus freed Paola and provided her with material wealth, but his patronage did not protect her from accusations of sorcery and dealings with the devil. Paola first came to Cartagena in 1624, where she suffered inquisitorial interrogations, a march and an auto de fe reconciliation and penance. By the time of her second arrest, she had lived in Cartagena for eight years, first as a prisoner in the tribunal secret prison, and then as a menial servant at the hospital of the San Juan de Dios friars. While serving her penance, washing filthy linens for hospital charity cases, Paula again started to arouse the inquisitor's suspicions. Paula's high profile, even as a penitent reconciliada, inspired the Cartagena Inquisition Tribunal to attempt another crackdown on love magic. The inquisitors arrested her for the second time in, in September of 1632. They did not immediately reveal the charges against her, but Paola quickly assessed her vulnerable position. At this time, she described her occupation as a curandera. She was a popular healer in the city of Cartagena and surrounding regions. She worked and socialized with a number of other Afro-Caribbean women who sold love potions and taught incantations and conjurations to a large clientele of women, rich and poor, white and black. Throughout her three trials, Paola developed strategies for dealing with the inquisitors. Her responses to interrogation did not lead to lighter punishments, but they do reveal a sense of self and even what might be called personal integrity or a code of honor. However this might strange this might seem in the context of a small witch craze in which she was the primary accuser. Paola de Egelus's stories were remarkably consistent over the course of four years of trials. When the inquisitors presented her with a set of accusations taken from other people's confessions, as was normal practice, Paola unfailingly confirmed the details she had originally stated sometimes years before, and she modified other people's statements according to her chosen version of events. This is an impressive feat given that her second trial that lasted from 1632 into 1633 had generated 71 different accusations. She faced 25 new accusations in her third trial shortly afterward, and her memory never failed her. She always stuck to her original stories, regardless of slanderous statements made by her enemies in the healing trade. As we will see, even after years of imprisonment and interrogation, Paola challenged interpretations of her behavior that violated her personal code of moral and sexual behavior. With her astounding powers of memory when it came to creating a persona for the Inquisitors, Paola strictly controlled the oral history of her dealings with fellow healers and sorceresses, as well as her version of her relationship with a demon that she called Mantelillos. From her cell in the secret prisons of the Holy Office, Paola also dominated other imprisoned women, overcoming her nemesis Diego Lopez's attempts to destroy her defense tactics, and she continued to manipulate the inquisitors themselves. Paola's second and third trials began with a typical scenario. In 1630, two years before her second arrest, a 13-year-old girl was the first to testify to the healers' re-involvement in magic. This child spent time at the San Juan de Dios Hospital visiting her grandmother, where she slept near Paola de Egulus's bed. She saw the penitenciada, known by the bizarre nickname Alleluia, dressed in a habit as part of her punishment with yellow and red crosses on her front and back. 
The only suspicious acts the girl could report had to do with the beaker of ungent and the herbs that Paola kept under her bed. The girl claimed that she saw Paola putting this ungent on her arms in nether regions, an action commonly associated with witches preparing to fly. One night, Paola's face seemed strangely shiny to the girl due to this. Gradually, new evidence against Paola emerged out of voluntary confessions made by young Spanish donas, or elite women. These confessions highlighted Paola's amazing powers of sexual attraction, which were the envy of many local women. The first doña to speak against her was Doña Magdalena de Estrada, age 23, who came to the Inquisitors in 1631 in response to an edict of faith. Doña Magdalena provided information about Paula's ability to control men's affections, confessing that one night she had discussed Paula with one of her lovers, a Spanish soldier named Diego Nunez. Nunez admitted that he loved and desired Paula so much that he could not stop thinking about her, day or night, even when he was with another woman. These feelings were so extreme that he feared that she had given him something to provoke his intense desire and longing. In his view, love and powerful sexual desire were wild and dangerous emotions, very likely fueled by magic. After the soldier left, Doña Magdalena, out of so-called womenly curiosity, questioned Paola, who lived at her house working as a servant and washerwoman at the time. Paola laughed heartily at Doña Magdalena's curiosity. And as the two women stood on the balcony, the doña reported that the sorceress pointed to the clear starry sky and invoked the brightest star in a spell mentioning demons, reciting an invocation that compelled a man to love and desire a woman. Paola lived with Doña Magdalena as her servant for six months and otherwise appeared to be a very good Christian, according to her mistress. Their conversation about Paola's knowledge of sexual magic shows how elite women turned to non-white women with reputations as skilled and experienced lovers when the white women wanted sexual exploration. After hearing the testimonies given by Doña Magdalena and the young girl, the inquisitors did not arrest Paola. They did not have much damning evidence against her at this stage. However, when another young Doña, Ana de Fuentes, confessed more serious evidence of Paola's involvement in love magic in 1632, her statements led to Paola's arrest, igniting what turned out into a witch craze lasting several years. These investigations differed greatly from other trials that had taken place in Cartagena. Paula de Agulus generally accused a circle of women comprised of her peers, including free and enslaved Afro-Caribbean women. This group of women did meet socially and formed a competitive community of love magic practitioners. In the 1630s, Cartagena inquisitors were attempting to control local society by weakening the groups they perceived as threatening, and these women must have stood out as a likely target. Paula's finger-pointing led the campaign to weaken these successful healers. Paola was one of the city's most skillful incarcerated negotiators, a talent she picked up as a successful free businesswoman and during her long stints as a captive in the Holy Office secret prisons. She learned a great deal from her first arrest in 1624 and applied this knowledge to her second incarceration and trial. Paola's primary defensive tactics were to accuse other women among her peer group of sorcery and pacts with the devil. After the women were arrested, Paola attempted to control their relationships with the inquisitors from inside her cell. 
For the first three days after her second arrest and imprisonment in September 1632, Paula stayed in her cell, planning her next move. She then asked for an audience with the inquisitors and confessed that she had made a new pact with her demonic familiar Montelillos. She also began pointing to other alleged witches. Negotiating personal conditions was a common tactic in Cartagena jails, but Paula took a more creative approach. She did not follow a common popular path of claiming illness or offended honor to improve her incarceration situation. As a non-white woman, these methods would not have done anything to convince the inquisitors to improve her conditions. She instead appealed to their emotions and used her storytelling skills to exploit their fears, manipulating her known affiliations with the supernatural. Shortly after her arrest, Paula recounted an incident that compelled the inquisitors to move her from jail cell number 12 to number 8. Paula said that two nights before, after midnight, the sound of footsteps in her cell woke her up and terrified her. The next night at the same time, she woke up with a sensation of heaviness and heard a high voice saying, Ay Dios! In response, a quiet voice, seeming to come from a so-called dead thing, said, Hang yourself here like I hanged myself here. Paula was petrified with fear and swore this story was the truth, begging for God's help with the inquisitors as her intermediaries. The next day in her second audience with them, she retracted all that she had confessed about witches' gatherings and those she had accused of attending, saying that she had lied because of her dread of the phantasm that visited her in the night. A few days later, she retracted the retraction, claiming that Montelios and another devil spoke to her through the tiny window in her cell, telling her not to accuse the other witches. But now she wanted to confess all and rejoin the Catholic Church. She listed several names and went into details of various women's sexual encounters with the devil. The Holy Office's dependence on finger-pointing and self-motivated confessions left them vulnerable to the schemes of a conscious negotiator like Paola. With her confusing confessions and extensive accusations, Paola controlled her case and the inquisitors. After a week in cell number eight, Paola again demanded changes and succeeded in receiving them by once again describing a fearful supernatural experience. A few nights before, she had awakened around midnight and claimed that for the length of time it would take to say a Hail Mary, she had felt ghostly hands from the other life touching her left thigh and torso. The entire area was chilled, and Paula felt scared, almost to death. She appealed to the Inquisitors, saying she she could not survive another experience of this kind. She feared entering her cell and begged for companionship. Again, the Inquisitors took her complaint seriously and suggested that she move for a second time, this time to a cell shared with other women. The Inquisitors knew that Francisco Angolo, a slave from Havana on trial for witchcraft had hanged himself in cell number eight a year earlier in the summer of 1631. Francisco was buried in the garden behind the secret prison. Undoubtedly, Paola had heard this tragic story and counted on the fact that the Holy Office would not want another suicide in its cells. The inquisitors justified putting three other women in the same cell with Paola by recording and writing that they were running out of space and all four women were involved in the same circle of witches. The cell had a window into the patio of the Inquisition Palace, so the Inquisitors asked for a good guard and that the doors be locked with a key, which suggests that sometimes they weren't even locked. 
This entire incident shows how Paola used her knowledge of prison gossip about the suicide of Francisco Angola to arrange a living situation where she could attempt to influence other women's confessions. To return to Paola's main accuser and her narration of doing business with the sorcerers, Doña Ana de Fuentes was born in 1610, married young, and after a few years of living as an unhappy wife, began to have serious problems with her husband. At around age 21, Doniana had sought help from her slave, a black woman from Lisbon, Portugal, named Barbara Gomez. She had persisted in worsening fights with her husband, Don Francisco. Barbara was an experienced diviner who later confessed to having her own demonic familiar and to having learned pro prognostication techniques, such as a famous one involving the Suerte de Abbas from a gypsy in Cadiz in an attempt to reignite her own relationship with a Spanish friar. When Doniana complained that Barbara's remedies had no effect on Don Francisco or her husband, and that their relationship was growing worse every single day, the slave suggested that her mistress call on Paola. At first, Paola distanced herself from the request for help, but Doniana insisted, so Paola began a long and increasingly more intense relationship with the young Donia, who confessed her version of their exchanges to the inquisitors. It was these confessions that prompted Paola's second arrest. First, Doña Ana said that Paola requested their couple's nightshirts that they wore when they were together, and Don Francisco's stockings and shoes, along with more intimate items, including hairs from his head and beard, as well as his urine. Doña Ana said the sorceress told her that boiling all of the items together and then putting them under their bed would make her husband love her very much. After two months and various payments adding up to 50 pesos, Doña Ana saw no improvement in her marriage, so she accused Paola of fraud. In response, Doña Ana said Paola tried more drastic methods, such as mixing chicken talons with herbs and placing this paste on Doña Ana's doorstep. Paola also gave Doña Ana a small scarlet purse full of strange herbs. Nothing had any effect, so Paola suggested that Doña Ana put her menstrual blood in her husband's drinking water. This spell did not reach fruition because her husband spilled the pitcher of water. Paola then asked for a drawstring from Don Francisco's undergarments, which she made into a rope full of knots. This was supposed to bind him to Doña Ana, not allowing him to have affairs with other women. After a few months, Doña Ana undid all the knots because she decided that this method had no effect. One of Paola's last efforts involved her asking Don Francisco for Don Francisco's right-hand glove so Montelillos could take it to hell to subjugate Doña Ana's husband. None of these things worked, so Ana ultimately went to the Holy Office. Paola also suggested several techniques to Doña Ana that were similar to common erotic magic efforts. She told Ana to gather some of her husband's semen in a rag and fry it in some oil. Tanya Anna did not do this, fearing it would harm her husband. Paola then recommended anointing the inside of Don Francisco's shoe and her own slipper with some of this semen, which Tanya Anna did twice to no effect. Paola's next piece of advice was to mix water to use to wash Tanya Anna's genitals into an egg cooked for her husband. Tanya Anna, who was illiterate, confused the directions of another love spell, confessing to the inquisitors that she recollected that Paola had told her to rub some pork on the length of her husband's genital member. Fry this meat and feed it to him, which she did. Paola later clarified that the pork was supposed to make contact with Doña Ana's genitals, not her husband's, before the husband ate it. 
Paola's version follows the standard love magic logic, whereby women's bodily fluids could control men if men ingested them. Rubbing greasy meat on her husband's genitals certainly implies that the couple maintained quite a degree of intimacy and trust, despite all of their apparent problems. It also makes clear that women use seduction techniques or erotic methods with varying degrees of sophistication for improving the actual experience of sex in the 17th century. So this is the end of today's episode. In the next episode, I will continue with Paola's reaction to these accusations. Thank you very much.